Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, changemakers, and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind the scenes journey of their experience. Welcome to Impact the World, and this is another edition that has been recorded during coronavirus lockdown. So my guests and I today meet over Zoom, and my guest is John Perkins. John is perhaps most known as the author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman. It's a book that came out in 2004 and has sold over 2 million copies and gone into over 30 languages worldwide. But his newest book, Touching the Jaguar, which was scheduled for release June of 2020, is incredibly pertinent to what we're going through as a world right now. He didn't necessarily write it knowing that we would be in the middle of a global pandemic when it was released. But I got to talk to him a little bit today about what are the themes that he hopes to inspire in others and what his experience of doing his work all of these years has been. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with John Perkins. John, thank you so much for being with us today. And I would like to thank you as someone who is very new to your work, just for what you do in the world, because what you're doing is not the same kind of thing I do, but I've had quite an education and also an inspiration just from researching you and everything you're doing ready for this work. So I say thank you for everything that you have been doing on behalf of the planet and the rest of us. Well, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for saying that, Lee. And, and thank you for what you do. I mean, we're, we're all in the business of healing, I think. We're all in the business of healing a human relationship with, with ourselves, each other, and the planet. And so in, in a way that, you know, it's, it's, common, it's common work, and it's work that's so desperately needed right now. And so much fun to do, too. It brings such great satisfaction. So you know, I think a lot of your listeners are doing that kind of work, too. And I honor all of them for this. Thank you for having me with you. I appreciate Thank it. You. Well, you have this new book coming out, Touching the Jaguar. And it's, it's interesting to me because I know books, you tend to be working on a book about two years before it comes out, sometimes before. So the prescience of the timing for this book is uncanny now, given we're right in the middle of this coronavirus, this lockdown experience, and touching the Jaguar is all really about transforming our fear into action. We've been in that state and that need as a world for, you know, the last decade or two for sure, but I think never more so than now. So I'm just curious for you, What's it like for you knowing that this book is coming out right now in the middle of more evidence than ever that we need change? Yeah, it's, it's, it is uncanny, Lee. You know, of course, when I wrote the book, I had no idea that we would have this particular viral attack right now. But what I did know is that we've been experiencing hurricanes and fires and earthquakes and tidal waves and other once in 100 year events every year or so, uh, very frequently, uh, for some time. So I knew that, that Mother Earth, Pachamama, was, was speaking loudly to us. And, and you can look at that from a completely scientific standpoint that, you know, 
people in China today can see the, the stars because of, <laughs> because of the virus, because Pachamama is speaking to us. Or you can look at it from a shamanic perspective, that this is a living Gaia that actually is speaking to us. In any case, when I wrote the book, I knew all that was happening. I knew we'd created a global governmental social economic system that many economists are referring to as a death economy, and that we needed to transform it. And that to transform it, we could use the shamanic technique of touching the jaguar, which we can get into. And as it turns out, it's the perfect technique for also for people dealing with whatever they're dealing with around the virus, around self-isolation and so forth. And also for understanding that this virus is just the, the, the latest and, and absolutely the strongest, the first totally, totally global message that Pachamama has sent to us that we must change. Yeah. And it's interesting because touching the jaguar in, in simple terms, from what I understand in the book, can be translated into touching your fears. But you have a very powerful story about you learned the experience of touching the jaguar through, I believe, a near-death experience that a shaman helped bring you back from. Is that something you could share with us? And Sure, kind of sure. Right. Thank you, Lee. It is in, in the book, but the, the short version is that in 1968, I joined the Peace Corps and I was uh, sent to the Amazon rainforest, deep into the Amazon rainforest, in what's called Schwa territory, which, uh, you know, the Schwa are hunters and gatherers, or they were back then hunters and gatherers. And it was a very primitive existence, deep, deep in the rainforest. And, and I got very, very ill in 1969, shortly after I'd gotten there. I was dying. Um, I, could, I could barely stand up. In fact, I really couldn't stand up by myself. There was no way I could walk for a full day through dense jungle and then try to find a rickety old bus that would take me for two days up into the Andes. It was a very, very difficult journey to the nearest medical facility. I, I couldn't possibly do it. So I was really resigned to dying. And then one afternoon, this shaman was introduced to me. Uh, and uh, he, he said, I can, I can heal you tonight. <laughs> well, I graduated from business school. This is 1969. I'd never even heard of a shaman, you know, like I was like, you know, but, but it's all the was, you know. <laughs> so what would you do? You know, you, get, you do it. And that night I had a remarkable experience. Uh, I, he took me into the shamanic journey, really a vision quest. And at one point, I, I saw this amorphous sort of vision in front of me. I didn't know what it was. And, and the shaman says to me, and we're speaking in another language, but he says to me, touch the jaguar. Well, I looked all around like, oh, no, where's the jaguar? There's a jaguar coming out of the jungle. <laughs> and then he says, touch the jaguar. And then I noticed this amorphous field turned into the, a jaguar. And uh, I, I went and touched it. And when I touched it, I heard a voice like my mother saying, the food and drink will kill you. And at that moment, I, I realized that, um, you know, I, I, I grew up in New Hampshire. I come from roughly 300 years of Yankee Calvinists who we washed our hands a lot. We ate very mild, boring, what I consider to be boring foods in those days. And now I'm living with people who've never seen a bar of soap. They eat some very strange foods, in my opinion, you know, including one of their delicacies, squirming white grubs that you eat mm. live. You know, it's, uh, it's 
And nobody drinks water. You know, the river water is, is it's known to be dangerous because the fact of the matter is it's filled with uh, organic matter, falling trees and dead animals that you know, died upstream someplace. And so they, the women make a kind of beer by chewing manioc root and spitting it. That sets up a fermentation process and it's called chicha. And then you can add water to it. It's, a, it's an alcohol. And you drink a lot of it. It's a mild, by the time you're after you add a water, it's, it's like, kind of like a light beer. beer. And uh, you drink a lot of it because you've got to rehydrate. And so over a period of 24 hours, you, you, you're drinking a lot, small doses. But that night on that vision quest, I saw that whenever I drank this spit beer or ate these squirming white grubs or other foods, I would hear a voice like my mother saying, son, it'll kill you. At the same time on this vision quest, I saw how healthy the schwa are, were, are very robust, vital people. You know, the men are all built like Tarzan. You know, they, they, they're hunters that carry heavy weights, dead animals out of the forest. And, and the women were, well, I was in my early 20s, the women were looking pretty darn good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and people who live to be very, very old, if they don't die, you know, infant mortality rates are fairly high. And also, if they, they might get bit by a snake or fall out of a canoe in rapids or something like that. But otherwise, they live to be very old. So that night, I realized that the food and drink wasn't killing me. It was my mindset. It was my perception. I'm telling a very long story here. Cut me off if you need to. No, no. It's, I love it because it's your programming versus the way you're going to save your life and break through your programming. No, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful story because it's, so, it's like a story that we potentially can all be in any moment of any day. Yes, and we are. We actually are. So we'll get into that. But So the next or a couple of days later, the shaman came back to me. And I, the next morning, I was feeling great. And he came, the shaman came back to me and, and he basically demanded that I become his apprentice as payment uh, because this is a non-cash society. Uh, and, you know, I'd graduated from business school in 1969. And I had no interest in being a shaman. I, there was no future in shamanism you know, today, but it wasn't then. But the guy had saved my life. And so I did. And what I learned from him, and then later, as I traveled around the world as an economist, I would study with shamans in Indonesia and Iran and Egypt and all over Latin, all over the Americas. And I would learn the same thing. There's a common thread. And that thread is that our reality is molded by our perceptions. So when you think about it, Lee, there, there's, no, um, there's no United States, there's no England, there's no Canada. There's no culture, there's no religion, there's no corporations. There's, there's basically almost nothing that we humans uh, pertain to or are part of, except as we perceive them. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, it has a big impact on reality. Now, that's the basis of shamanism everywhere. It's also the basis of, of modern uh, psychoanalysis or therapy. It's the basis of quantum physics. It's the basics, basics of marketing, of advertising, of selling things. It's the basics of philosophy. It's everything. And, um, but this is the first time I'd really thought about that. And, and the shaman says, uh, you know, the, to change, to move from one reality to another, all you have to do is change your perception. 
but there's always this, this jaguar that stands on what you call the perception bridge that takes you across these realities. There's a jaguar standing there that scares you from changing. But when you touch, and if you run from that jaguar, it'll chase you. But if you touch, it gives you the energy, creativity, and, and wisdom and patience to change. So in my particular case, you know, the, the, the reality is spit beer and squirming white grubs. Perception, it'll kill me. And so it was killing me. <laughs> and then I saw that on that bridge, there's this jaguar that I needed to change this perception, but there's this jaguar, which is really my, my mother's voice or somebody's voice saying it'll kill you and constantly saying that. But once I touch it, I see that why would this be killing me? Because it's not killing all these people around me. In fact, in, in current terms, we'd say it was, it was very organic and local. It was totally organic and totally local food and highly nutritious. Um, and so I, you know, by touching that jaguar, it was saying it'll kill you. By touching that jaguar, the jaguar suddenly turns around and says, hey, no, it's making you healthy. It's good food. And, you know, we can bring that to all aspects of our lives. And that's actually how we move from this death economy, this system that's failing us into what I call a life economy, a system that, that we, we will all want in our lives. We can get into that more later. But the important concept is this jaguar, you know, stands there and uh, keeps us from doing what we know we want to do, need to do, should do. But when we touch it, we, have, we, get, we give ourselves the energy the wisdom and the courage to, to actually change. So moving out of that very direct teaching experience that you had and bringing that into your life, how today, I mean, you've practiced touching the Jaguar a lot in your life. So now for you, it's probably a more developed muscle than it is for perhaps a lot of people. But we're in this time right now where I've never seen the levels of fear in my lifetime, as high as I have seen them at a collective level, as in the last six, eight weeks, maybe. I'm also seeing a lot of consciousness, possibility and light, but the fear has definitely been strong and disabling to a lot of people. So I'm curious for anyone who right now in this moment we're in is trying to figure out ways to touch the Jaguar, to not recoil from their fear or to be able to step through it, is there any advice that you could give or any experience that you've had that might enable people to push through what might otherwise hold them back? Yes, I think that it's, it's, it's a little difficult to generalize because everybody's coming from different, different fears. So, so that, for example, somebody might be saying, well, my goodness, I, I can't stay self-isolated for another week forget about a month or two months. Or how long is this going to go on? I'm a social animal. I can't do this. It's driving me crazy. Well, if you touch that jaguar, the jaguar might say, hey, you've always wanted to learn to play the flute. You've got a flute and you can learn on, on the internet. How to play it. This is a great opportunity for you to play the flute. Or you've always wanted to write a book. Here, you've got time now to write it or even or read a book or wanting to be more deeply in touch with relatives who live overseas, be on the phone with them, uh, learn, practice more yoga, singing, dance, whatever it is. And so, so see that Jaguar is opening up this time space for us to, to explore other things that we normally, we, we, we said, well, I don't have time for that. I can't do that. I got to get to the office. I got to do whatever. 
So, so one fear, this fear of, 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 of self-isolation, this fear of not being able to do what you normally do, when you touch that, you see that it opens up some other opportunities that may be things you've been wanting to do for a long, long time, maybe all your life. That's one fear. Another fear might be, well, I've, I've lost my job. I, I don't think I'll ever get it back. I was a, a waitress you know, in a, in a restaurant, and, and I, the restaurant's never going to reopen, and a lot of restaurants aren't going to reopen. What am I going to do? Again, you, you, I mean, I, I've known a lot of waiters and waitresses that have said, you know, I, I do this job because what I really want to do is write. I have to do art or do, play music or whatever, but I need this income. Well, so now's the time to say, well, now I'm going to do what I really want to do. I'm going to be able to make a living writing or doing art or playing music. Or maybe it's that you love food and you say, well, wait, so all these restaurants are going to close down. So there's going to be an opportunity here for me now to open a restaurant or maybe to, to get more into the business of delivering food. Maybe I can cook it in my own home, depending on you know what the licensing requirements are, the particular state you're in, or, or get a license or whatever it is, because things are going to change. So I think that um, it, you know each of your listeners has a, comes with a different uh, passion, but every one of your listeners has passion. Every one of you out there, you all have passion. I don't know what your individual passion is. You have passion and you have skills. This is the time to really look at what do you truly want to do for the rest of your life? What will bring you the greatest satisfaction? What is your true passion? As an example, I can say my passion is writing. And and uh, and I and that's what I want to do. And so, uh, you know, I, I see this as an opportunity. I, I, you know, I'm supposed to go on a... <clears throat> seven or nine city book tour beginning in mid-June. <laughs> Cities around the United States and then to Canada and maybe maybe later to Europe. That's not going to happen, which is disappointing to me because I, I like those book tours. I don't read book, read my book in book, bookstores. I talk and I meet people and I sign books. People buy books. And I love getting out there with people and getting their feedback. It's not going to happen. So, but on the other hand, I have much more time to do what I'm doing with you right now. We can do so much of this. And some of these bookstores are looking at doing these things online, and they may be able to reach a lot more people than if I'd been in the bookstores. So how do we, how do we adjust? How do we touch the Jaguar? What, first, you've got to identify your, your, what it is you really want to do. And then look at what it is that's keeping you from doing that. What are the blockages? What are the fears? What are, what's holding you back? The fear of change. And then how do you change the perception around that? And then what actions do you take to actually make it happen? For a writer, the action is got to write <laughs> every day or most every day. Well, it's interesting because, you know, if I'm just going to read here from, from the, the page for your book, which can be found at your website, johnperkins.org, the, the lines that you've written on the webpage there are, we live in a time of catastrophes, virus pandemics, climactic cataclysms, species extinctions, terrorism, political upheaval. What can we do? We can touch the Jaguar. And one thing that I did um, yesterday, John, preparing to, to talk to you today was I went and looked at your 2016 TED Talk, which is a fantastic TED Talk. Um, and it's interesting, it it's called An Economic Hitman Confesses and Calls to Action, which references your hit book, uh, no pun intended, that I mentioned in the introduction. But it's something you said in that really struck me. You, you said, we're living in a consciousness revolution. 
And this was 2016, four years ago. And then at the end, you, you speak about we have the power. And a couple of the things that you said are join an organization or start one, local ones which affect local laws and communities. You also said corporations, which are really running the world, you said con convince them to serve public interests, send them an email, and when you write to them, don't make them an enemy. And it was interesting to me to see four years later, the relevance of everything that you're advising us to do and be is, is, is more relevant than ever. But this goes back to my question really about fear. One of the things that I've seen that seems to be disabling a lot of people is this fear of conspiracy theories, what's going on, what's the other agenda, and what I see it do to people who start to engage with those ideas, if they see those ideas as the truth or the only truth, is for many of those people, they become disabled. Uh, they start to believe that we're on a very doomed narrative or that, that they have no control, no freedom, no way of affecting change. So that's a really big question that's up for people at the moment. So I'm wondering, do you feel like your advice at the end of that TED talk, which I recommend everyone goes and watches, is still, is still in place and still true, that this is a time that a lot more people can take action through this consciousness revolution that we're experiencing? I think it's more true now than, than ever. Um, and I think more people are getting it now. And yes, this is a tough thing to go through. There's, there's just no question about it. Uh, but it's forcing us each of us to, to ask ourselves, so what is my role in this? And, and every one of your listeners, every one of you out there has tremendous power. Revolutions have always happened because uh, people came together and realized that, that everybody, you take the American Revolution, you know, it, it happened because Tom Paine wrote, wrote pamphlets and George Washington led armies and Martha Washington brought women together to make bullets and clothes for the men at the forefront. At the, in, the, in the front lines. And, and then you had the, the fishermen of Maine who became the Navy, and you had the, 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 the hunters of Virginia and, and New Hampshire who became you know, the sharpshooters. And, and, and all of these people brought it together. And it's every revolution that we've ever had, it's, it's people coming together to make things happen. And so again, you know, and so that yeah, and so this is this is the book. There's there's that jaguar. I love that jaguar. I just want to hold it. I usually wear a jaguar shirt, but it's in the laundry right now, so I'm not wearing my. I get this big jaguar shirt. Uh, but uh, you know, so at the at the end of the book, um, well, the book is stories. You know, I'm, I, I what do you call? I, I write a, um, a, a narrative nonfiction which is storytelling, true stories, because I think people like stories. It's more fun to read stories. And these are all stories that then lead us to this place where, where each one of us uh, can have a daily routine. Uh, and I describe it as a 10-minute routine that you can do every day. You can actually less than 10 minutes and don't have to do it every day. You can do it once a week if you want, however. But basically... It's a, it's a process, and you start by asking yourself five questions. I won't go into the whole process, but the five questions are, what do I most want to do with the rest of my life? You know, that is the most important question, and everybody out there, every, list, every one of you can ask yourself that question. What do I want to do with the rest of my life? What will bring me the greatest satisfaction? You could, you could say, well, when I'm on that proverbial deathbed, which we'll all reach at some point, 
looking back and saying, what am I most happy that I did? Or maybe what do I wish I'd done? And it's time to start doing that right now, today, maybe tomorrow morning, but to really make that happen. And then you, I think it's, I think we all take greater satisfaction when we do something that makes us happy, but it also helps others. That's an important part. So the next question is, how do I use this passion I have, what I most want to do for the rest of my life, to help others? And the others could be one other person, or it could be your whole city, or your country, or the whole world. And then the, the next question is, what's keeping me from doing this? Or what might keep me in the future? What are the jaguars holding me back? What are the barriers? And the, and the fourth question is, what do I need to do to touch the jaguar? How do I change my perception? And the fifth question is, what actions do I begin taking immediately? And you know, again, Lee, I'll give you a quick example, just a personal example. So what do I most want to do? Write. How do I tie that in with making a better world? I write stories that inspire people, I hope, to transform a death economy into a life economy. <laughs> uh, what are the jaguars standing in my way? Well, I could go back and originally what it was was I had an English teacher uh, in college and I'd been a great writer in high school, won short story awards and been editor of newspaper, et cetera. And I, I go to college and this famous writer is now a English professor and he, he criticizes my writing terribly. Nothing gives me anything above the sea. It discouraged me so much I quit college. And I eventually went back, but rather than returning to an English major, I, I studied economics and business administration. I just stopped writing. It, it hurt so much. The thing I loved most was writing, and, and I can't do it. This guy, to my respect, says I'm a lousy writer. So that's a big jaguar. But then a little later, I began to think, well, this guy is just another human being. Maybe he's wrong. Oh, and incidentally, he criticized Bob Dylan's writing. Mm -hmm. Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize in Literature. <laughs> what is that team? What does that professor know? You know, like he didn't like my writing because he, I mean, you know, maybe he likes some other style. I don't know. So that was a big jaguar, but changed my perception. Okay, I can write. I'm a good writer. I've had other teachers. A lot of other people love my writing. So I turned that perception around. The next step is, what actions do I take? Well, a writer has to write every day. And I realized that I probably write a thousand pages for everyone that's ever published. I published 10 books. They sold over 2 million copies, you know, but I've written a hell of a lot that's never been published. Yeah. But you think about a concert pianist practices for a thousand hours for every hour they're on the stage. I'm using a thousand, roughly speaking. Professional tennis player practices for a thousand hours for every hour he's actually out on the competition circuit. Uh, that's how we are. And so, you know, so the so you get those, those those five steps. What do I most want to do in life? How does that tie in with making a better world? Three, uh, what's holding me back? Four, how do I touch that Jaguar, change that perception? And five, what actions do I take? Every day, almost every day. Beautiful. And the book, book kind of, you know, it gets into that the, you know, the outlines, it goes through stories about this, but then it gets into a, a real process that you can do every day for under 10 minutes. And, and it's fantastic, by the way. It's really, it's re I mean, it's great. But you know what I've realized? Because I, I, I know I don't have forever to talk to you. And we have named a few times death economy. And that was one of the things that really struck me. That was a term I'd never heard before. But as soon as you explain it, I'm like, oh, that makes complete sense. So could you talk about the death economy, the life economy? And in, in looking at your dream change, I think it was on your dream change organization, there's also the mention of circular economy, but 
perhaps just to stick with the book, um, yeah, could you explain to us what is death economy and life economy? What's the difference? Yeah. So, you know, I, for 10 years after I got out of the Peace Corps, that experience I explained, I, I went back to what I'd been trained to do. I became an economist and I became chief economist. And really, I was doing the work of economic hitmen, which, which when, when I, at the beginning, I thought it was really important, good work that was really helping the world. But I came to see it as a form of colonization, what we were doing. And, and then I began to see that it was creating an economic system that just plain doesn't work. Uh, it's a death economy is an economic system that in fact is killing itself, destroying itself. It's consuming the very resources upon which it depends in the short run. It's consuming them in the short run and leaving nothing for the long run. And it's based on a, a perception. Here's that perception that molds reality and the perception which really took off in 1976 when Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize in economics and became a very, very important voice. And one of the most important things he said, important in a bad way, was the only responsibility of business is to maximize short-term profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. Now, that was an idea that had been growing before 76, but it really took off in 76. And it's been the guiding light. It's been the perception that that's what business is. And individuals ought to maximize their short-term benefits, consumer benefits. So they've been this guiding voice. Uh, and it's taken us to this economic system that's failing us. There's no question. You know, climate change, uh, income inequality, uh, terrorism, species extinctions, even this, this virus, are all symptoms of a global system that's not working, a death economy. They are not the problem. They are problems, yes, but they are not the problem. The problem, they are symptoms of the problem. And the problem is this death economy. The other aspect of that is the life economy. And a life economy turns that perception around. This is, we touch that Jaguar and we say, we got to change. We can no longer maximize short-term profits regardless of social and environmental costs. Instead, we need to maximize long-term benefits for all people and nature, for everything. And that's a very, very old concept. We, for most of human history, that's what's driven us, the long-term benefit of our children and grandchildren and so on and so forth and, and that connection to the earth. This is what indigenous people live with. So in the modern idea, people will say, well, oh, if we get rid of this economic system, the fear here is oh, I'm going to have to live in a cave. <laughs> you know, I won't be able to visit my relatives uh, uh, in the next state over. I won't be able to travel. I won't. But the fact of the matter is what a life economy that we can create today is one that, uh, that pays people uh, to clean up uh, pollution and to regenerate destroyed environments, to recycle and to create new technologies that, that use the sun and wind even more efficiently than we are today and, and maybe make energy out of air. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful future that we can bring, bring to ourselves. And, and it's, it's in the process of happening, incidentally, and, and was before the coronavirus came along. Um, so what we're really looking at is, is an economic system that pays investors to hire people, pays a decent rate of return to hire people to, to clean up pollution and to regenerate, to restore, regenerate, to, to create an economic system that is a living, sustainable, truly sustainable system. And as I said, I, I, we're on the way to that. It all starts, though, by changing that perception from maximizing short-term profits 
to maximizing long-term benefits. So that's all it takes, really. And it's something that we as a people are going to have to stand for, ask for, demand. Otherwise, it's it's going to remain the same status quo, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, we've been seeing that, uh, the advent of B corporations, benefit corporations, conscious capitalism, the fact we're having this conversation, you and I, uh, the, the Green New Deal. Uh, last August, uh, 192 of the world's most powerful, most successful corporate executives came together in the, the, the business roundtable, and they actually said... <laughs> We must not have as a goal any longer maximizing long-term profits. The goal must be to make decent rates of return and to help our employees lead better lives, help our customers, and to help the communities where, that we serve. And so in essence, they were saying we need to move into this. And now it's up to all of us out there to make sure that they, they do this. We as, in, as investors, as consumers, as employees of these companies to really uh, make sure that they, they that they do this, but the, the process has begun. It began quite a while ago, and it's, it's, it's been, it was growing. And I think hopefully the coronavirus will take us to the next step. Yeah, one of the things I enjoy about you, John, because you know it's clear that you've you've seen a lot of things that many of us haven't, and you've been in worlds that many of us haven't. What I feel from you is kind of is a grounded hope and optimism which is, is, is nice to feel. Uh, yeah, I feel that from you when I, not just, not just now, but in reading the book, in looking at your TED Talk and some of your materials. And that, that's heartening, I think, to a lot of people right now who perhaps only see the problem but don't necessarily understand how the solutions can be born. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I think we're, we're blessed, all of us, to be born at this time. Because it's a time when Pachamama, the earth, is really speaking to us. And uh, it's, it, we, haven't, we, we, did, we didn't listen. Uh, and so we're going through a, a big struggle now with this virus, which is very unfortunate. You know, people suffering, dying. It's, it's creating huge problems for people in many, many ways. But it's also creating a lot of opportunities, and it's forcing us. A number of years ago, a, a shaman lady from the high Andes of Ecuador, a Quechua woman <laughs> with the wonderful name of Maria Juana, mm. <laughs> Maria Juana Yamberla, she said, um, well, I was translating, I lead groups of people, you know, as you know, to, to shamans in, in different parts of Latin America. Again, it's on my website, johnperkins.org. If you want to join us, we've got a trip coming up in January that I'm pretty sure is going to happen. It's amazing, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> and so I'm translating. Somebody asked Maria Juana, so how do we save the earth? And she laughed. <laughs> she said, well, Pachamama, Mother Earth's not in danger. We humans are, and we're, gonna take a, we're taking a lot of species with us. But, we, you know, we're like so many fleas. And if we get to be too much of a nuisance, she'll just shake us all off. And then she said, but, you know, 20 years ago, that volcano, she points up at this sacred volcano that hovers over her home in Babura. And she said, that volcano 20 years ago had a very thick ice cap. It doesn't anymore. Pachamama is twitching. She hasn't shaken us off yet, but she's twitching. And so we need to really listen to the message. And, and then she looked around this group of people and she said, you know, all of us in this room, we're, we're very, very blessed to be born at this time when we can listen to Pachamama. 
and we can we can bid her calling. And you know, Lee, I thought about that every time there's been one of these major once in 100 year events a hit, which has been frequent in the last few years. And I thought, Pachamama just keeps twitching harder and harder. And now, but I mean, but the thing about those events, they everybody sort of looked at them as local. <laughs> you know, if you survived the hurricane or whatever the event was, you expected that the outside world it was going to come to your rescue in, in a week or two, a day, days or a week or two. It, bottled water was going to arrive, food. And then some leader was going to come along and say, hey, we're going to rebuild. We're going to be better than ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it, it, and then it just sort of blew over. This one is global. Yeah. There's no outside world to come to our help. People everywhere on this planet are being impacted by this virus. Well, it's bringing us all together in a way nothing else ever has and and at least the history that we know of uh and so it's very 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 powerful very powerful it's a very powerful twitch um and let's hope that we get the message (laughs) so we don't have to endure an even more powerful one in another year or two or three yeah and your Pachamama Alliance, I want to just mention that before I talk to you a little bit more about the process of writing itself. So your Pachamama Alliance, and this is what's on the website, is a global community that offers people the chance to learn, connect, engage, travel, and cherish life for the purpose of creating a sustainable future that works for all. And that's pachamama.org. And it's an amazing resource. And and again, just window into education and change. Um, just is there anything about that that you can tell us about how that came to be born? Because you were the founder, uh, one of the founders of Pachamama Alliance. Yes, it was a, 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 back in the early 1990s. The Achua people deep in the Amazon, I lived with their neighbors, the Shwa, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer. And, and at that time, the Achua were officially uncontacted. They became officially contacted in the 70s. In the early 90s, they, they reached out and, and they said they'd been getting this message that, that they needed to change and, and reach out to us. So what really happened with them, and it's a fascinating story, I think, is those indigenous tribes, what are now recognized as nations, throughout the Amazon basin, the upper Amazon, we're talking about Ecuador and Peru here, what's called the headwaters, the sacred headwaters of the Amazon. They'd all been warring with each other for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years, because they saw that hunters and gatherers need a big territory. To defend that territory, they had to keep off their neighbors. They had to fight to keep off their neighbors. And then in the, in the, in the 70s, they realized that the real threat was not their neighbors. It was foreign oil and mining companies. And so they had to change the perception of who their enemies were and join forces with enemies that people have been enemies for centuries I mean, a huge mindset change, a perception change. No, you're no longer our enemy. You're our ally. We got a bigger, more dangerous enemy. And then it struck them that the real enemy was not even the oil and mining companies. It was the perception of the world that, that was driven by oil and mining. It was us. It was our perception of short-term profits and of using oil and, and all these minerals that were being mined in the short-term benefit of rapid economic growth. And they, they got this. And so then they, they came, they reached out to me and said, hey, will you help us join a, create a partnership with people from your country 
from your not just your country but your your area Europe the United States Canada all over to help us create a partnership to change the dream as they call it which they meant the perception of the modern world and I brought this message back to Bill and Lynn Twist who were the co-founders with me they organized a group and Pachamama Lines came out of that in the mid 90s we're now in over 87 countries I think 87 89 countries now with things called the Awakening the Dreamer Symposium, but to change these things. We're also working very strongly with the indigenous people who are our teachers and who go and teach at these things. And we're also very much involved in legally keeping the oil companies out of these territories. So it's this twofold thing, but it all goes back to that message of changing the perception of the modern world. First, these people had to change their perception of who their enemies were. And then they had to look more deeply and see what the real problem was, it was that Jaguar. And they're the ones that they, they very much, you know, like, like what I experienced in, the, in, the, in, the, in 1969, they, you know, here it is, 19, and here it is all these years later, and they are still talking about how we've all got to touch that Jaguar, this fear of, of change, this fear of moving out of a death economy, a system we know is failing us. But there's a fear there, you know, what happens if we change that? Does that mean I can't fly to Ecuador anymore? Does that mean I'll have to give up my job? What does that mean? This is fear that we need to touch. Hmm. Hmm. We don't have too long left, I'm, I'm aware. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the process of writing. But you just said something that reminds me of, and I can't remember whether I read this in the book or whether I saw this on one of your videos, but you talked about the story behind the story. Can you, can you elaborate uh, on that a little bit? on Because what you just said made, made me remember what you said about learn the story behind the story. Yeah. Well, thanks, uh, Lee. I think that's, you know, that's all of my books, I think, are about the story behind the story. So as an economic hitman, I was doing things that I had been taught in business school were the right thing to do. But in the end, I saw that these were hurting majority of people in the countries we said we were helping, we were helping the very rich. And we could show statistically that the economy was growing when we did that. But what, what we what people didn't get, and, and I was I did eventually come to understand is that, you know, when when you got like in the United States today, three individuals have as much wealth as as the bottom economic half of the country. If those three individuals had a 10% increase in their assets last year and the bottom half of the country had a 3% decline, you're still going to show an overall increase in GDP of something around 3 or 4%. Mm. So I realized that the statistics, the perception we were creating through, through statistics was a lie. It wasn't doing, it was not helping the country become more prosperous. It was helping a few families become more prosperous as well as our own corporations. And uh, so that's when I decided uh, to, to get uh, that I had to that I had to get out of that and and, and turn things around. And I think I've, I I deviated from your your original your question. What, what was, how, what no, was it, it, it's great because in a way, you know, there were there were many different things that you that you have in the book, and also in some of the other materials of yours that I checked out. Oh. Which is that were just great concepts, great frames of, of how to look at things. And the story behind the story, I think, in a way, is, is what I think a lot of people are in shock about right now. Yeah. There, so is the a certain narrative, there is a certain narrative that has been, you know, this is the line. 
And if you really look at some of the stuff around the narrative, it doesn't quite make sense. It doesn't quite add up. And there are lots of question marks. So I think just that whole story, look, look for the story behind the story. It's, it's no different to that phrase, follow the money, um, to try and see where the truth lies. And so it was just a good framework. But um, perhaps at this point, we can pivot, pivot to talk about the writer behind the book. Because a lot of people, um, a lot of people who, who tune in will be people who will be thinking about doing their own writing. So I'm curious for you, what has, what has being this writer of these books allowed you to do? Because you've clearly built, I always say that a book is a great passport to all of these other things. So you can, the book might be the, the, the spine of the teaching, but then you can take it into other places and expand the, the messages in other ways. And you've clearly done that. So you said your passion is writing. How do you feel as an author now with all, all of these 10 titles behind you and these experiences? Like what, what has that given your life, just you personally? Well, it's, it's uh, extremely satisfying. Uh, so when I was an economic hitman, chief economist, traveling around the world, flying first class, eating with the finest restaurants with presidents and so forth, I thought I was living the American dream. I'd grown up relatively poor in rural New Hampshire. My dad was a teacher. We, you know, we had enough money to survive. But I mean, it was a boys' prep school. I was surrounded by very, very wealthy kids from all over the world, boys, for, for all my life. And I heard these stories, and I, I wanted that life, and I got it. And, and then I realized at some point, I, this was not making me happy. I, I hated myself. I, I became... I started to become to hate myself. Again, that story behind the story, I began to see the story behind the story, that, that, that we weren't doing what we said we were doing. We weren't making the world a better place. We were just making a few people richer. Um, and decided that I had to get out. And I had a, a, I had a very enlightening moment one, one afternoon. It's, the details are in the book. But, um, and after that, I quit. And I've devoted most of the rest of my life uh, to writing about these things and speaking out. And first, I wrote five books on shamanism and indigenous people. I didn't write about my life as an economic hitman because when I started to, I, my life was threatened, actually. And that, that's in the book, too, the details of how my, my life and my infant daughter's life were threatened. That I was writing about these. I had to stop. So I wrote about indigenous people and shamanism. I went back to the Amazon. And I loved doing that. And that opened all these doors in kind of what we might call the new age field, uh, where I get invited to speak at places like Esalen and Omega and, and all of in different countries. And then 9-11 happened. And I knew I had to write about what I'd done as an economic hitman. I just, had to, I just felt I had to get that out there. Uh, and again, the story behind that story is in the book. Uh, and... And the book was a big time bestseller, over two million copies. Seventy weeks, right? That it spent on the New York Times bestseller yeah. list for over seventy weeks, yeah. And uh, thirty-seven languages, I think now, and and uh, uh, over two million copies. Yeah. And then I wrote a couple, of, I wrote three more books on global economics and intrigue. That opened a whole other series of doors. I found, I found that I was being invited to speak at economic conferences and business forums and so on and so forth. And you know what was interesting is that whenever I spoke at the shamanic things, people would say, "Hey, you're the same. You're not the same guy that wrote that 
Confessions Economic Hitman book are you? And when I spoke at, at, at the economic conferences, people say, well, you know the guy, I wrote those shamanic woo type of books, are you? And I realized that for me, there was always this connection and it's all about the perception. Both of these worlds are created through perceptions and there's the perception that we have in the business community totally creates the reality of the way people live. And that's a shamanic thing. So then I decided, well, I, I need to, write a book that, that that brings the two together. And, and that's, you know, this one, Touching the Jaguar, which, which overtly brings them together. Before that, I had always known there was a connection, but I didn't talk about when I, when I talked to business people, I didn't use the word shaman. And when I talked to shamanic people, I didn't really talk about, you know, the business world. So this book is, is a way of, through stories, and also then to inspire people, to, to empower them to move forward, a way to bring those those two worlds together. And it's been really fun writing it. And, and all these books, yeah, they've opened many, many doors. I think one of the great benefits of writing is the doors that are open. So the first five books on shamanism I wrote, they were not big sellers at all. They were niche books, but they, they opened doors for me to speak, for me to meet other people, for me to take people to the shamans. And of course that then inspired me to do other things and help me learn. I listened to other people. And that's the other thing as a writer, you know, there's a lot of exchanges like the one we're having right now. And I usually learn something from my, these exchanges too. It helped me in the next book I write. Of course. Well, well, thank you. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for, for doing what you do, as I said earlier. But, you know, I was laughing when I knew what you were going to say before you even said it, that you, you know, the, the audiences from the new age and, and the audiences in the economic world were suddenly forced to bridge um, so thank you for being a bridge of consciousness in our world, because that's what you have done. And it's interesting, as, a, as someone who's channeled for almost 20 years, they, they talk a lot about bridges of consciousness and people who are bridges of consciousness. And it's clear that you are, you are one who has been able to straddle and fuse the worlds. So thank you, John, and good luck with the book. And for everybody who's tuning in, you can visit johnperkins.org to find out more about all of John's work and also to get his new book, Touching the Jaguar. Thank you, John. You're welcome, Lee. Thank you for having me and for doing what you're doing. And I'm so appreciative of you getting these messages out there. It's so very, very important, your work. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Impact the World. And if you want to go deeper and more in depth with my work, you should check out my members group, The Portal. You can find it at my website, leeharrisenergy.com or visit theportal.world.